The Lord be with you. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us understanding today as we turn to what could be a very difficult passage. So we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear from you most of all, that you may receive the glory and honor now and forever. Amen. Amen. Here it is. Here's your notes. Today we move deeper into the heart of the letter of the Hebrews. In this section, the author begins to explain how Christ as our great high priest, so that's been established, he's our great high priest, dealt with the issues of sin and human sinfulness. And that's going to take pretty much till the end of, or halfway through chapter 10 before we kind of complete and round it out. And then he starts winding down like a good preacher. He has like three conclusions. So we'll get there. In particular, this segment, which we're looking at today, the first 14 verses of chapter 9, explain how the sacrificial system of Israel, as temporary and imperfect as it was, was nonetheless instituted by God to teach Israel about the gravity of sin and the means through which sins are atoned. I mean, think about it. If you committed a sin and you were being faithful and being um, devout, you, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, you had to travel to Jerusalem, which could take three days, I mean, four days, five days, to get to Jerusalem. You had to buy animals there or take animals with you and then sacrifice them because you stumped your toe and said a bad word. That's a bit facetious. But you know, like, the sacrificial system taught this deep, deep gravity of offense against God and what was required in that system to be able to make atonement, make amends between God and a human. Even more, the rites and rituals of the Old Testament sacrificial system were established as foreshadows of the truer reality Christ on the cross. This section and the next few in addition are theologically rich and extremely important to our Christian faith, but they aren't easy reading. We will need to work hard to understand not only Hebrews, but the Old Testament rites, rituals, liturgies, and the tabernacle. So I just want to ask a question. Has anyone ever done a study? I'm not sure I've ever heard of one in the church, but maybe of Old Testament tabernacle worship, like gone deep into what that would have looked like or been like. Well, when I, when I, or ever seen like, uh, let's see, when I was in Old Testament class in undergrad, the professor brought in one of his daughter's stuffed animals and showed it, he like practiced, showed us what it would have been like to sacrifice and how, where they would have cut and what they would have done. I mean, just stuff that we don't often go to Leviticus for our daily devotions, but it's, it's really important stuff, isn't it? It's important for us because that would have been the bread and butter of worship in Israel's religion. So, well, good. We're going to have some time then to dive into it and think about the sacrificial system. So with that, let's read chapter 9, 1 through 10. Now, Father Ted's boasting a new Bible today, so I'm going to ask you. Will you read it? In the New American <laughs> in Bible. The New American, the new American right. Bible. Are we ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay. Chapter 9, the worship of the first covenant. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was constructed, the outer one in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of offering. This is called the holy place. 
Behind the second veil was the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, in which were the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant entirely covered with gold. In it were the gold jar containing the manna, the staff of Aaron that had sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation. Now is not the time to speak of these in detail. With these arrangements for worship, the priests, in performing their service, go into the outer tabernacle repeatedly. But the high priest alone goes into the inner one once a year, not without blood that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. In this way, the Holy Spirit shows that the way into the sanctuary had not yet been revealed, while the outer tabernacle still had its place. This is a symbol of the present time, in which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper in conscience, but only in matters of food and drink and various ritual washings, regulations concerning the flesh, imposed until the time of the new order. Thank you. Great. Any, um, if you followed along in your Bible, your translation, anything notable that you saw that you was interesting or different? One that was different from mine was the unintentional sins. Tell me what verse you're in. Um, that was when he goes into uh, into the second into, for, into the holy of holies. Yeah, but into the second one for uh, for himself and for the errors of the people. Verse seven. Yeah. What does yours read? Second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Yeah, so that's actually interesting. We'll talk about that in a second. Is yes, go. Is that manna from the forty years in the desert? Yes. 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 So that stuff was better than Twinkies. It was better than Twinkies. It lasted radiation. Yeah. No. It. Um, well. Okay. So what's interesting is that's what he mentions, which is definitely what we get from the tabernacle when the temple is um, when the temple's dedicated in Second Chronicles. Uh, which we read about. That's the great passage, if my people who will call by my name, it's often co-opted about America, but it's about Solomon praying for Israel, then we don't read that that's in there anymore. It seems that perhaps somewhere along the way, the jar and Aaron's staff that budded was taken out. What's a Twinkie? What's a Twinkie? It's a a dessert that will last until Christ returns. That's why we never eat them. Really? So, has, so, okay, so let's talk about that. Those things that are in, in there really quick, which I guess we'll get to in a second. But does anyone know about Aaron's staff? Does anyone remember that story? No. Yeah, it was, a, uh, I believe it's from the book of Exodus that uh, uh, signifies perpetuation of his priesthood. That's right. So people were challenging his priesthood. It was this was when Miriam and this is the core rebellion, and they come and they say we can be priest. God can talk to us, can't they? Can't he? And 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 they said, well, let's see what happens. A lot of things happen, and one of those is that God's priesthood, or that God buds this staff of Aaron to show that He had blessed Aaron and his priesthood. And so they put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a means of kind of signifying 
that God's provision will take place, the manna. He's going to provide for his people covenant through the covenant. And then also it's going to be through the priesthood of Aaron in which this covenant is maintained. So, looking back at our notes, this chapter returns to the theme of Israel's worship and sanctuary. Something that was mentioned just ever so briefly at the beginning of chapter 8. The long quotation from Jeremiah, if you recall from the end of chapter 8, might have seemed like a sidebar. Sometimes you get that in, the, in Scripture, right? Paul will go on and on, and then all of a sudden he'll just kind of talk about something random, and then he'll go say, okay, now back to my main point. It seems like that's what the writer of Hebrews did. He kind of went on this rant about um, the, old co- the new covenant passage from Jeremiah, and then he's going to say, oh, by the way, let's keep going with the issue at hand. But not really. The covenant, covenant and worship, as we're talking about now, they go hand in hand. The covenant dictates the regulations for worship, and worship is the highest expression of a covenant's relationship between God and his people. In fact, we would say that acts of worship, particularly the ritual acts of worship and sacrifice, these are covenant renewal moments. With a new covenant now enacted, we can assume there are new parameters for worship. That's the writer's implication. Hey, there was an old covenant that had old rites and rituals. We're in a new covenant. There must be new rites and rituals because that's what happens as part of the change. He already established this with the priesthood, right? There was a new priesthood, Melchizedek. There must be a new covenant. Therefore, there must be new worship. So where's he leading us from the beginning with all this new stuff? Where do you think kind of his grand conclusion is going to be? What is it, Sarah Helen? Well, always, yeah. Sunday school answer. Well, what I think... New world established in the pattern of God's world, God's kingdom. Which for us takes place in what in a regular basis? Worship. The Eucharist. Eucharist. That's where he's going. That it's in the Eucharist that we receive Jesus who is fully God, fully man. That the the priesthood of Christ is, is maintained among us. And that it is... The sacrifices of the Old Testament are fulfilled and applied to us through Christ and that we have something better. He'll go, kind of a climactic verse that we'll get to in chapter 13 is he'll say, we have an altar of which they, meaning the priest in the temple, cannot eat of. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Eucharist, an even better altar than the one in the temple. Whoa, that's radical for Jews, right? I mean, this altar's been around for 2,000 years. And you're saying you have a better one, which is probably just a table in someone's foyer at this point in history? That's right. That's right, because of Christ. So to set the stage for expounding new covenant worship in Christ and how it fulfills the old covenant, the writer begins by describing the wilderness tabernacle and its furnishings. This tabernacle, the language that's used in mine is, uh, let's see, is it earthly? Worldly is what the King James says. Worldly sanctuary. It's a word. It it can be maybe earthly in your your translation. Worldly. Anyone have anything different? This is verse 1. Anybody have something different? Okay. It comes from a Greek word that actually means cosmic. Cosmic. So, cosmiki. Perhaps a double meaning is intended. The tabernacle was earthly. That That is a potential meaning of this Greek word. And thus, it's unable to unite people to heaven. So he could be using it as a derogatory term. Hey, that's an earthly sanctuary, not the true heavenly sanctuary. 
So it can't bring people to where God dwells, which will be a major theme that he's trying to get to. How do we get to the presence of God? Second, it was cosmic in that it it reflected to a degree the true temple in heaven, which is in the cosmos, in the heavens. And then it also reflected the entire cosmos. This is a huge sidebar that we could have a whole day talking about, is that the temple actually was supposed to reflect the entire understanding that an ancient had of the ancient of the world. You had the big, big, what was called the laver, which was a big bowl for ritual washings that was on the outside. We'll talk about that in a second. This would have been maybe seen as the sea, which is in this part of the world. They had a three-tier understanding of the world, the earth, the heavens, the highest heavens where God dwelt. You then went into the holy place, and there was the candelabra, which was the stars and the lights. There was then a veil, which maybe represented the clouds and the heavens, and there was incense. And when you went beyond the veil into the highest heavens, that's where God dwelt, his throne. And so even the tabernacle, the temple, it... it, Say it again. Well, it wasn't just women. It was most men. It was only, we'll talk about that. Most people could not go in there. And that's, that's, that's the problem he's raising is how do we get to God's presence? Because, and you have to read kind of all of scripture together. Why is God's presence important? When did we lose access to God's presence? Uh, Eden. We are kicked out. And there's another connection to tabernacle and temple. If, if, if the tabernacle kind of represents all the world and the priest through his ministry is bringing Israel to the very presence of God, all of creation actually is this grand cosmic temple. You have in Genesis, you have the Garden of Eden where God and man are able to dwell together which is a place within this region of Eden, which is flourishing. And then you have the outer world, which is covered in water, is what we read. So it's three-tiered. It's three-tiered. All, and the idea was that Adam, who was set up as a priest with his helpmate, are, is supposed to take this presence of God to the world. Well, what happens after Adam and Eve sin? This is Genesis, 3 verse, or Genesis 4, verse 1. They're kicked out. They're kicked out. And who is set in charge of guarding this access to God? Cherubim. What do they have? Flaming Flaming swords. This is from sci-fi. They have flaming swords. And you can't get back into the Garden of Eden. What is sewn into the temple veil? Does anyone know? Images of cherubim. Cherubim. Images of cherubim. So it's it's all connected. That when when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies... He was reenacting what Adam was unable, he's, he's undoing Adam's fall. He's being able to go back into the, the Garden of Eden. But the problem is, is when he goes in, it's fully, fully in the sense of penance. He's sprinkling blood. He's concerned. Uh, the Talmud tells us that they had to tie ropes around his feet because if he dropped dead, no one could go. They had to pull him out. Mm-hmm. And he wore bells on his vestments, as we'll see in a second. So that way they could still hear him. And if he stopped jingling, well, there went Jerry. We'll have to pull him out. So try again next year, Jehoiada. So we don't know if it ever happened, but there you go. So, Where did you get that, that name, Jerry? I just said it because he's not here this morning. So yes, go ahead. Question. Yeah. Would the high priest appointed for life? Or, mm-hmm. so yeah. there would it was hereditary. Be one, so at some point... Okay. Yeah, it was. So it was for, dead inside. The if they drop dead, yeah, it was you, definitely. 
It was his son. And went, You're up next. <laughs> no, no one wants that job. So, so do you get what I'm saying? All the world was supposed to be a temple. The tabernacle represented that. The tabernacle was able to, in a very limited sense, give Israel access to God's presence that Adam and Eve had lost. And then this all connects with Jesus who then leads us to the book of Revelation where it says, I see the new Jerusalem, the holy temple. It comes down. And have you ever wondered why is it, it gives all these measurements, 144,000 stadia by 144. It's a perfect cube because the holy of holies was a perfect square. The entire world is engulfed in the holy of holies. And it says that we are all priests with the name of God written on our forehead. Only the high priest had a turban. As we'll see in a second, I have a picture. And it said, Kadesh le Yahweh, holy unto the Lord on his forehead. We all become high priests in Jesus Christ and we worship him forever. From Eden to the new Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? And that's what he's describing here. That is what he is trying to get us to wrap our heads around. Is that if you don't understand this whole trajectory of temple, tabernacle, access to God's presence, then you're going to miss some key points about this grand, beautiful salvation that Christ offers us. So that brings us to point D. All right. In verse two, the author describes what would have been very familiar to any first century Jew, the description of the tabernacle furniture. I have handouts. So we can talk, we'll talk about the Ark of the Covenant. So that's probably why he focuses on the tabernacle because it's the fullest description that everything else is based on. Even though the tabernacle is no longer in existence, the, the pieces are still in existence. So let's look at this. Um, we, now we could definitely have an entire study dedicated to the tabernacle and temple and what all the furniture and decor symbolize. Today we just need to quickly familiarize or refamiliarize ourselves with it particularly the three divisions, outer court, the sanctuary, which is called the holy place, and then the holy of holies. So at the top, you'll see that's kind of a diagram. That looks almost identical to when Liz and I were in Israel. And we told, I think I told you all last week, we went through this setup to the best of their ability of what the tabernacle in the wilderness would have looked like. That's exactly what it looked like. Okay, so then that picture below, you can see kind of what's going on. You have the big squares, obviously the fence that was, I think it's eight and a half or nine feet tall. You then have the one entrance. And then the first thing when you enter is the burnt, uh, the, 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 the altar for burnt sacrifices. Okay. So that teaches people a theology. What's the first thing you have to do is you start entering God's presence. You have to offer, you have to atone for your sins. You then have what's called the laver, the bronze laver, or sometimes called the bronze sea. And that would have been for ritual washings, also a practical purpose. Um, You ever killed an animal? It's pretty messy. So they wash themselves. Then you go into, you can see as you go in, to what's called the holy place. So that whole area is sometimes called the outer court. Then there's also 
when the temple gets built, there's even then courts of the Gentiles, which is outside of that. So only Gentiles, and then there's courts of women. So they could only come so far, and then Gentiles so far, and then men could come right up to this outer court, okay? You could come to the altar of sacrifice if you're escorted by a priest. But then once you get into what's called the holy place, that is only where Levitical priests can go, the sons of Aaron, okay? They only can go there. And we have three pieces of furniture. We have the lampstand, which is actually a giant menorah. If you, This is why Jewish um, people still celebrate with a menorah for Hanukkah. That's what it's based on. You then have what's called the table of, sometimes we call it showbread, uh, the bread of presence. It's got a couple different names. So does that mean that David went into the holy place? Yes, that's, and that's, that's a huge thing that Jesus picks up is David got to go into the holy place and he eats the bread of the presence, which was only reserved for the, Jew, the, the priest on, on Sabbath. But David gets to eat it. He actually, this is a kind of part of the argument that Jesus uses, the writer of Hebrews. Therefore, there must be something priestly about David, and it connects with Melchizedek. So that would have been unheard of, um, that someone other than the Levitical priest. You then have the altar of incense right there. The incense represented prayers, and, so, and also maybe this cloudy firmament. And so you have to pass through the incense to go into the holy place. And the only thing in the holy place is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And then if you look down, I have a picture. I told this thing to print in color, but it didn't. So you can see, it's kind of hard to see and the words are small, but you can see the altar, you can see the brass laver, you can see the size of that little priest right here, about the size of what the tabernacle would have been. You can then see as you walk in, there's the big menorah, there's a little table off to the side, number 10, that would have had the 12 cakes of bread for... The 12 tribes of Israel, you go through, and then, and then there's the altar There's the altar of incense, and then you have the Ark of the Covenant. You can see there's the high priest's vestments. He has a turban. Uh, his vestments were actually kind of blue and purple. And then he wore this thing called the ephod, which had 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So he was definitely carrying them with him into, the ark, uh, into God's presence. Again, we could spend... Weeks upon weeks just talking about that worship. Any questions about that? And uh, the other thing is if you look at the, ver- the hem of his garment, he had um, bells. You can hardly see them. There are bells and then there's golden pomegranates. So he was like decorated like the earth, like the sky. Blue and purple. He had earth on him, uh, pomegranates. Again, all sorts of stuff we could talk about, but we'll have to move on. Fascinating, fascinating. One interesting detail about Hebrews is that for some unexplained reason, Hebrew seems to place the altar of incense. So look at your picture, altar of incense. He places it inside the Holy of Holies. Now in Exodus 30, verse 6, it is said to be placed in the holy place just in front of the curtain. Uh, as you enter into the Holy of Holies. However, and perhaps this is where Hebrews is drawing from, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 5, God tells Moses to place it, quote, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That could imply a location inside the Holy of Holies. So maybe that's where he's getting it from. Maybe there's a tradition of saying that's where it should have been placed. Now, another explanation is that this word for altar of incense, it's actually the exact same word, though rarely used, for simply a censer. Think about the thing that, you know, 
We swing at church sometimes. That's a censer. We, we call it a therable. The, the, the priest would have had something somewhat similar. Some people think it might have been almost like a pan that had charcoal in it, and they just dumped incense on it, and he carried it like this. Say, huh? right? Well, no, it smelled good, didn't it? And so, could it be that the high priest, oh, the high priest did bring a censer with him into the holy place. The idea was that he, he couldn't see God and he had to be covered by this lest he die on the Day of Atonement. And so, that could be what the writer is mentioning, yet it would be odd for him to bring up every piece of furniture except the altar of incense. So we don't really know what's going on. We don't know. Uh, and if you're, I don't know if anyone's footnotes have something better to say, but my, the commentaries I read just pretty much were like, our best guesses are to say we don't know, and that he just maybe places it inside the Holy of Holies for some reason. Now, the most sacred object in all of Israel was in the Holy of Holies. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It was a large chest with three items inside that we talked about. The golden jar containing manna, the staff of Aaron that budded, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. By the time we get to the temple dedicated, the only thing mentioned is the tablets of, of Moses. And it's the second tablets, right? Because what happened to the first ones? Moses smashed them into pieces. On top of the chest sat a lid of pure gold with two cherubim made of hammered gold. These faced each other and their wings outstretched. So it kind of covered the ark like this. These faced each other with wings outstretched. This lid was called the mercy seat, is what it's often translated in English. We can thank um, John Wycliffe in the 1400s for that translation. Yeah, which, but it's not actually a great translation. It's not a seat. It's not that God sits on it. The reason he gets it is because it says God is enthroned on the cherubim. So the idea is God would sit there. It's actually more often called his footstool. A king would have a very special footstool, like a little ottoman. Uh, but really what the name of it is, if we translate it today with our deeper knowledge of Hebrew, it means something like place of expiation or the place of the purging of sin, which makes sense. This is where the high priest sprinkled the blood each year on the Day of Atonement. So verse 6 tells us that part of the priestly ministry of the Old Testament was repeated entry into the first tabernacle. Now the first tabernacle, that can be confusing. What he means by first tabernacle is if you look back at your picture... He means the holy place. He means the holy place. The first, that that second tier. Not the outer court, but the middle place. Now, who got to go in there? Who got to go in there were sons of Aaron, but it's it's his entire lineage. Yeah, the Cohens, that's right, the priest. His entire lineage got to go in. The high priest is his direct successor. Okay, so you could think of all the different princes in the English royal family. Prince Andrew, Prince this, Prince whoever, but there is, but there is the king, right? So that only, only the direct lineage of Aaron, his direct son, begot, 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 could go into the holy of holies, but all of his children and descendants created the priesthood. And then the, hold on, we're done with that one. So this stands in contrast to Christ who enters once and for all. Am I right? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, no, that's right. This stands in contrast to Christ who enters once and for all. Their ministry included three main duties. Tending to the lamp every morning and evening. That lamp was not supposed to go out. And it was like little cups that had oil in it. And they would fill it with oil. So, Father Thad's our priest who tends to our candles at the altar. Um, 
burning incense every morning and evening. So they would burn incense on that altar of incense every morning. And then they would also replace the bread of the presence or the show bread weekly, every Sabbath. Really interesting stuff about the show bread. Uh, we have evidence in the, um, the Talmud. The Talmud is a, it's a collection of oral traditions that date, the, the traditions are supposed to date to before Christ, but it's not written down until after Christ. And we're told that the high priest on, it's either Passover, I think it's Passover, they, or the high priest would actually bring the table of the bread of the presence out. And if you read about the bread of the presence, it's supposed to signify God's presence, God's love, which is very interesting, right? Because we believe in the real presence of God in some bread. And so he would bring it out and he would hold it up. I'm sure he had to have help because it was overlaid with gold. Hold it up and he would say to the congregation gathered in front of the temple, behold God's love for you. Behold God's love for you. Now, isn't that interesting that the earliest Christian liturgies took the Eucharist and, and you historically would just hold the bread, that little cup that has the bread, and you would say, behold the Lamb of God. It's the same kind of liturgy being participated in. It's fascinating. And so, hold on, hold on, we're going to move on. <clears throat> Verse 7 tells us that the high priest only entered the Holy of Holies and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. He did this to make atonement for himself and the nation through blood. Now, it's important for us to refresh or even learn for the first time what all took place on this day. On this day. So I'm going to read to you from Healy, Mary Healy, our commentator, about the Day of Atonement, okay? It's a little bit long, but try to visualize this all-important day in Israel's worship. Okay. You're cute, you're cute. They're more interested in you than me. Okay, here we go. You ready? Yom Kippur. That is the Day of Atonement, was and still is the holiest day of the Jewish liturgical year, the day when atonement was made for the sins of the priests and the people and for any inadvertent defilement of the altar or tabernacle. It takes place in September, 10 days after the beginning of the Jewish New Year, which is called Rosh Hashanah. On this day, all Israel fasted in repentance for sin and gathered in solemn assembly. Hebrews only briefly summarizes the complicated rites of that day, which are described in detail in Leviticus 16. So if you have trouble sleeping tonight, pull up Leviticus 16. You can learn, and trust me, it'll put you to sleep. First, the high priest ceremonially washed himself and donned his sacred linen garments, what we just saw a picture of, and his mitre, his turban. He sacrificed a bull as a sin offering for himself and his household. He then took two goats and a ram from the people and cast lots over the goats. Casting lots would have been maybe throwing dice or picking straw or some. We're not sure how they did it, but it's a way of just randomly choosing something. Cast lots over the goats to determine which one would be the scapegoat. You ever heard the phrase scapegoat? That comes from this ritual. The other he sacrificed as a sin offering to atone for the sins of the people. He then entered the Holy of Holies with burning incense and sprinkled the blood of the sacrificed bull seven times on the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, making atonement for himself and his household. Leviticus specifies that that the cloud of incense covered the mercy seat 
to prevent what would otherwise be the priest's sudden death in the presence of the holy God. (laughs) Who wants his job? The high priest then did the same with the goat's blood. So he went back out and he got goat's blood. So the bull was for his sins. The goat's blood is for the people's sins, which is very interesting. He had to sacrifice this ginormous animal. I think it was teaching him he was, you know, the chief among sinners. The high priest then did the same with the goat's blood, making atonement for the sins of the people. He then smeared the blood of both the bull and the goat on the altar in the courtyard. So he exited all the way back out to the courtyard and smeared blood all over it. Next was the scapegoat ceremony. Laying his hands on the goat's head, he confessed over the sins of Israel. Then sent the goat into the desert, quote, to carry off all their iniquities. This is where Hebrews will make a claim just as the goat was led outside the camp. Christ was crucified outside of the city. He is both our scapegoat and our sacrifice. Every aspect of the Old Testament ritual comes to kind of converge in Jesus. Finally, he bathed in front of everyone. He would have bathed. Well, the priest, they had that. It would have just been the priest. He bathed and put on his usual priestly attire, which is separate from the high priestly attire. So he's really only functioning as high priest one day a year, okay? He put on his usual <coughs> priestly attire and offered two rams. So we're up to how many animals gone? Five. A bull, a goat, a goat sitting to the wilderness. Now two rams. As whole burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings means you burn it until there's nothing left for himself and for the people. According to the Talmud, which is that book of oral tradition, the priest had a custom of tying a scarlet cord to the scapegoat. And every year the cord was reported to have turned white as the goat was led away from the city. A miraculous sign that God had accepted the sacrifice and that their sins had turned from scarlet to white. Isn't that a cool tradition? The Talmud records that for the last 40 years... The Talmud says this, by the way, a book that's very anti-Christian. The Talmud records that for the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, so what's 40 years before? A.D. 30. The cord failed to change colors, causing incredible consternation among the priests. Mm -hmm. Moreover, during the same period, inexplicably, the western light of the menorah kept going out, and the doors of the temple kept opening on their own. The rabbis later interpreted these ominous phenomena as presaging the presaging the imminent destruction of the temple. Amazingly, they began to occur just at the time with Christ, the all holy victim, offered the once for all sacrifice for sin. There was no longer a need for a scapegoat or for any of the rites of the old covenant. Isn't that cool? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. 40 years, 40 days, 40. of running before the destruction of the world, 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Hey, that's good too. I didn't even see that. 40 years. But could you imagine the one year where they're like, oh my, it didn't turn colors. We'll try again next year. And then you're like, like year 35, you're probably thinking, oh, this is all just a joke. This, what is, and then the Christians are over here going, we got the answer. Yeah, that's amazing. I had never heard of that until I read that. That's phenomenal. And it is interesting that Christianity is so often confirmed by its enemies, right? Isn't that fascinating? All right, we got to keep going. We're never going to get done with this, which is great. Verse 8 is very important. The writer says that the Holy Ghost who inspired Scripture and thus these ancient rituals, right? These are inspired by God. 
revealed God's hidden plan through them. It was obvious that access to the Holy of Holies was the goal. For all people, the goal was to go to the Holy of Holies. But it was not yet revealed. How could people get in there? I mean, Leviticus is very clear. If you're not the high priest, you go in there. And if you are the high priest and you go out in there, other than the Day of Atonement, you're dead. You're zapped. You're done. <coughs> the word yet is key. It shows that God would reveal a path to God's presence. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But ancient Israel just didn't understand how that would come about. Hebrews will complete this idea in a climactic section. It's 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brethren, through the blood of Jesus, we have confidence of entrance into the sanctuary. By this, he means holy of holies. By the new and living way. So it's not a dead animal. It's a new and living way. He opened for us through the veil. That is his flesh. So then he connects the veil of the temple that separates God from man to Jesus' flesh because he's, it's God veiled in flesh. Ah, Hebrews is amazing. It's connecting on all these different points. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us that this tabernacle system of worship, three tiers with a focus on ritual atonement, sacrifice, all that, it's a parable or a figure or symbol depending on your translation. Just as the worshipers in the old rites couldn't enter the very presence of God, and thus it was an inadequate form of worship, so also were its rituals and sacrifices ineffective at making the worshiper perfect in respect to their conscience. That is, it couldn't transform a person spiritually and morally. However, it was a figure. It pointed forward to the means through which that would ultimately happen. The final verse of this segment, verse 10, says that the old rites could only bring about ritual purity in regards to food, drink, and various washings. Very interesting here that the writer of Hebrews actually calls it baptisms, various baptisms, which is the Old Testament in Greek, is often what's used for these various washings, baptisms, baptisms, and sprinklings, baptism, all of which are, he called, in the King James, it's called carnal, but it means pertaining to the flesh. It just has to do with outward. You could be purified and made. It's outside of our religious context, but they had, a, they had this understanding of clean or unclean defilement, and it wasn't moral. You didn't get defiled just because you sinned. That definitely brought it about. You got defiled because you touched a dead body. Um, uh, women were defiled when, when they were on their cycle. Uh, men and women were both defiled if they had come together and had sex. There was physical defilement, and you just had to go through... You had to go through ritual washings and cleansings for the sake of your flesh to be brought in. Very much outside of our understanding. But that's what happens. And so he's saying the only thing the old rites could do was make you pure in terms of food, drink, and various washings. They are external. And they don't transform the heart. Even still, they point forward as signposts towards a time of your translation, Father, said new order. Mm-hmm. Kind of a scary word for today. But it could also be another, I think the King James says Reformation, which maybe they're drawing on their own history. <laughs> the time of Reformation. Maybe that's kind of a, a kick against the Catholics. I don't know. A time, of, a time of reordering is the idea, which is obviously a reference to the New Covenant. When the inner purity would come about. Now, Healy, our commentator, makes an, a great observation. It's interesting that the wording... Uh, She says this, the wording food and drink and baptisms, which are these various washings, may be deliberately intended to invoke the two foundational sacraments of the new covenant, baptism and the Eucharist, 
which truly changed the human person from within. So it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews is saying the, the only thing that the Old Testament, Old Covenant could do was things about food, drink, and washings and couldn't bring about interchange. But in the New Covenant, we don't discard food, drink, and washings. We have baptism in the Eucharist. But it does bring about the interchange that the Old Covenant could not. So with a reminder of the tabernacle's furnishings and rites, the writer has set the stage for a comparison with Christ starting in verse 11. So why don't you take us away again, Father Ted? Sure. 11 through 14. 11 through 14. And we can follow along in our translation. Sure. Sacrifice of Jesus is its title. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come to be, passing through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not belonging to this creation, he entered once and for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a heifer's ashes can sanctify those who are defiled so that their flesh is cleansed, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to worship the living God? Anything different in your translation? I'll tell you what, one thing that we're going to talk about, the king, you don't notice it unless you're really paying attention to the Greek and you think about translation we'll talk about, is your said in verse 11, by passing through the greater tabernacle, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the King James says, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Mm-hmm. So it could mean the same thing, but that, we'll talk about that. The Greek word, it's interesting. This is probably one of the most debated part verses in Hebrews. We're not really sure what he means, which is I think it keeps us humble, right? After 2,000 years, there's still parts of the Bible we look at and we're like, what do you think it means? I have no idea. And these are like, you know, people with multiple PhDs. So, by contemplating the Old Covenant rites in verses 1 through 10, what we just did, Hebrews is able to lead us to appreciate the far greater reality they foreshadowed. The goal of this segment is to help us recognize how incomparably better the, quote, good things that have come to be, end quote, in Jesus Christ are. What we notice, though, is not that the writer disregards the old rites as empty and pointless, but as signposts pointing forward to Jesus. They were meaningful in the time, and they were important. Like, I mean, you get the hint in the Old Testament that they're starting to realize, you read this in the psalm, God, you really don't want just the blood of bulls and goats. You want a contrite heart. You want repentance. They're starting to see that these are outward signs, but they don't yet know where it's going. They're just kind of walking through the fog. And then when Jesus comes, those who have, to whom it's revealed, they go, ah, this is where we've been led for these many years to. Thus, knowledge of the old rites is not just helpful, but essential if one wants to comprehend the fullness of salvation through Christ. So verse 11 seems straightforward at first glance, but it actually contains one of the more debated interpretive questions in Hebrews. It says Jesus has come as a high priest of the good things to come. That's easy, which is the new covenant. He did this, and here's that word, by or through, the, or passing through, the greater and more perfect tabernacle. It seems that the writer is simply, at first glance, it seems this is what he's saying. Jesus has gone to heaven 
and entered God's presence. And that might actually be what he says. But the problem is, it's that the writer in Hebrews always different. He differentiates when we get to later verses. He differentiates between the this greater tabernacle and the sanctuary. Okay, the sanctuary is his word for the holy of holies. So, if he's saying he's passed through this to God's presence, well, that doesn't really make sense because the scheme he's built for us is that God's presence is the greater tabernacle. So how can he go through it or buy it? Or So what is he actually trying to say? He has two words, greater tabernacle and sanctuary, and he differentiates them. If we read them as the same thing, then it makes sense. Okay, but it doesn't seem that. So there are about four or five main interpretations of what exactly this greater and more perfect tabernacle really is. This is interesting. Healy says that it refers to Christ's risen and glorified body. And you're probably thinking, where on earth does she get that? Well, Jesus himself said he would raise up a temple not made with hands. And what was he referring to? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He's referring to his own body. He's referring to his body. So our Lord even makes that connection, that he himself is the temple, which seems to echo the tabernacle not made with hands, which is the reference right here in verse 11. Human bodies are actually called tents or tabernacles. Um, skene, that's the Greek word. In scripture, you can read a few references there. And St. John famously uses the verb form of this word, skene, it becomes um, skeneo, when he says Christ came and dwelt among us. Christ came and tabernacled among us. He's actually making a direct reference. That's in uh, John chapter one, verse 14. He's making a direct reference that just as God dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness, Jesus in his person is the tabernacle, the full presence of God among us. So if this interpretation is true, then we could understand that preposition by or through in verse 11 to mean something like this. Christ having come has become the high priest of the new covenant. That's the easy part. By means of the better tabernacle, which is his risen body. So it's by means of his body, he's able to become the mediator of this better covenant, which doesn't belong to this creation, which he says, but it belongs to the new creation. For it is not made with hands, but by God himself. Now that probably is one of the most difficult um, things we've tried to cover today. It's complicated. It's hard. What is he actually saying? And at the end of the day, he might just be saying a very poetic, flourishy way of saying Jesus has passed into the heavens and become a better, he's gone to the heavenly sanctuary. But there's issues because he doesn't, that word greater tabernacle and sanctuary, he seems to think as different things. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it later. That's kind of complicated. Let's move on for the sake of time. Theologically, the significance would be that Christ's body, that is his sacrifice and resurrection, are the means through which he enters God's holy presence and the means through which we gain access to God as well. So that makes sense. It's, it's by participating in his resurrection and sacrifice, his body and blood, that we come into God's presence. Now, verse 12 contrasts Christ's priestly ministry with that of the Levitical priest. Rather than enter the true holy of holies with the blood of animals, he brought his own blood. Why blood? Well, this is one of those things that is just understood in the ancient world. Blood is, contains the life of an animal, the life of a creature. Mm-hmm. 
This is what the Anglican bishop and scholar N.T. Wright says. And if he got the N.T. right, then how could he be wrong? The life of the 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 sacrificial animal symbolized by blood. So blood is the great kind of epitome of a sacrificed animal. Being poured out in death as a sign means that though our lives are indeed forfeit because of our wickedness and impurity, God will rescue us by providing a life given in death instead of ours. So that sacrifice is something of a, um, a substitute for us. Because Christ brings a more excellent sacrifice, he has obtained something that animal sacrifice could not. And the writer of Hebrews calls it eternal redemption. He only had to enter the sanctuary once rather than repeatedly. What's more, he gets to stay there and continually plead his blood and his sacrifice for us. He forever makes intercession for us, is what the writer of Hebrews has already said. Now, the word redemption, remember he says he gets eternal redemption? It's, it's so commonplace in Christian talk that we can fail to remember its biblical significance. It's a term related to the exodus. It means release from slavery and bondage through a payment. Christ paid our debt to sin and death, thus liberating us from Satan and the power of death. Having secured that redemption through the cross and resurrection, he can now enter the heavenly sanctuary to make full atonement and secure our salvation before the Father. That's the writer of Hebrews' entire kind of scheme of salvation. Now, in verse 13, the writer alludes to yet another ancient rite, kind of without introduction. He just mentions it. And that's the sprinkling of people with ashes from a heifer. And it's mentioned in Numbers 19. This was done when one became ritually defiled, we talked about that earlier, through touching a corpse, whether a person or an animal or anything, touching death, death made you defiled. The writer says that such a ritual and the sprinkling of blood could, quote, sanctify, which means make holy or just set apart, makes you kind of separate from others, in a ritual sense in regards to their flesh. He's already said this. Now this leads to verse 14. If the blood of heifers could do this, What about the blood of Jesus Christ? If the blood and ashes of animals could at least affect ritual purity, how much more efficacious and powerful is the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ? It's an argument called lesser to greater. You say if the lesser can do it, then how much more can the greater? Just like the heifers and animals of old, he was also spotless. But for him, it was also moral and spiritual. The spotlessness of the animals referred to physical blemishes. They couldn't have a broken leg. They couldn't have a messed up ear. They couldn't have an eye that was gouged out. And he says, okay, that makes sense because those rituals only affected outward physical things. So the lamb needed to be physically spotless because all that's going on is you're being physically purified in order to go into the the sanctuary. But Jesus was spiritually spotless, which corresponds to him making you spiritually pure. Even more, the animals were passive victims. That lamb never raised its hoof one day and said, I'll do it. I'll be your sacrifice. No, you probably looked at it and said, you're mean. You're the one going. Next time I go to the temple, (laughs) it's you, right? Like they had no idea what was going on. But Christ, as we sing in that great hymn, Hallelujah, sing to Jesus. He was both priest and victim. Offerer and offering. Who offered himself in our stead. Now, another interesting phrase, and we're, we're wrapping up. What does Hebrews mean that Christ offered himself 
through the eternal spirit. It's a strange phrase, that, that line, eternal spirit, that it never occurs anywhere else in Scripture. Obviously, it means, I mean, the, the, the meaning is not complicated. It means that Jesus made his offering in union and by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? But why call it eternal spirit? We also don't have any references to eternal spirit anywhere else in Jewish literature. This could be the only reference uh, up to this point. However, in the context of this discussion, we've been talking about sacrifices. We've been talking about tabernacle. We've been talking about the temple. The use of that word eternal might, and I'm going to say might. I'm not, don't hang your hat on this. It might actually echo back to the fire on the altar of sacrifice. Now, why is that? God miraculously ignited a fire when he instituted the priesthood. You can read about that in Leviticus 9. So he struck a fire, and the priest had to make sure that it never went out. In fact, it talks about them carrying it with them as the tabernacle roamed around. So once that fire was struck, never supposed to go out. For only that fire, this holy fire from God could be used to consume the sacrifices on the altar, okay? And so it became known as the perpetual flame or the eternal flame, eternal. Now, we already know that in Scripture, this was both pre-New Testament in Jewish literature as well as in New Testament. The Spirit is often characterized as what? Flame. Flame, fire. So... This fire, it seems the writer of Hebrews is saying, again, he's connecting it all to Christianity. He does it amazingly. Foreshadows the Holy Spirit who ignites Jesus' heart with love for humanity so that he might be sacrificed. Just as the fire is what consumes the animal on the altar, it's the Holy Spirit that consumes Jesus in his sacrifice for us through love. The end result of Jesus' sacrifice is that he can purge or cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. This was actually the goal of the Old Testament rites, but they can never be achieved. Through Christ's sacrifice, we are internally transformed. Our conscience is purged, which means it has to do with the way that we interact with the world in an interior way. And we are freed from sin that separates us from God, dead works. It's probably, it's, it's meaningful that he says dead works because dead things, first off, death was the curse for sin, right? Uh, in Genesis 3. Second, as he kind of mentions that ritual of sprinkling with heifer ashes, which is if you were touched death, death ritually made you impure. But he, he purifies the death within us, the, the dead works that reside in our hearts. So that way we're not ritually impure or actually spiritually impure. He actually purges us. So that's kind of a climactic point that Christ is able to do through his great sacrifice on the cross in the eternal spirit. This great culmination of tabernacle worship. He does what the Old Testament rites and rituals could not do. Purify you internally from death. And so with that, any questions? Is it about this? Yes. Say it again. I don't get In wine? Yes. Well, well that would be messy. Not really. Not really.
Uh, yeah, yeah, that's why. Okay, so on the Day of Atonement, that's why he had to wash himself and then redress because he's actually become, um, he's become ritually unclean through touching the goat and, sat and sprinkling blood. It actually makes him ritually unclean because he's come in contact with the sins of the nation. So, yeah. So it was all, I mean, as I think it was, um, it was actually Liz's aunt, Aunt Dawn, she sat next to someone on a flight one time who was Jewish and got into a conversation with them. And she, she did work for the government and would fly to Israel a lot. And she just said, oh, I'm so glad I'm a Christian. They have so many rules. And so, you know, you, you can't, like, especially the Orthodox Christians or Orthodox Jews, you know, they won't, they won't shake hands with a woman. You know why? They won't touch a woman. Because if she just happens to be on her cycle, he would become ritually unclean. And it's a whole ritual of purity that he has to go through. So how do we get more Orthodox Jews? How? Well, carefully. <laughs> So, I don't know. That's, I don't know. But, then, you know, they have separate sinks for, for kosher, uh, kosher dishes, different things. Yeah, and so just saying how, how tedious the rituals were. And we see how tedious they were here. I mean, it was, you know how long it would have taken to sacrifice and burn and do all? I mean, this was a whole day ordeal. And that's including all the rituals they already had on a daily basis. So we can give thanks, as St. John Chrysostom did in the end of the, third, the 300s, that we celebrate the unbloodied sacrifice in the Eucharist. How much easier? How much easier? All right. Well, God be with you, and we will see you upstairs.